Are you uh, sure you know where the impound yard is? Oh, stop stalling. Come on. I, I, I can't think. It's all this noise. Or is it because I've built a stronghold around Greenland? I've driven you out of Western Europe? And I've left you teetering on the brink of complete annihilation. I'm not beaten yet. I still have armies in the Ukraine. <laughs> the Ukraine. You know what the Ukraine is? It's a sitting duck. A road apple, Newman. The Ukraine is weak. It's feeble. I think it's time to put the herd on the Ukraine. I come from Ukraine. You not say Ukraine weak? Yeah, well, we're playing a game here, pal. Ukraine is game to you, but would I take your little bonus? Yeah, it's a classic episode of Seinfeld. Newman and Kramer on the train, playing Risk. <laughs> Love that one. Hi, everybody. Tony Mazur with the Check Your Brain podcast. Thank you for listening, as always. If you're a new listener and you're checking this out, uh, I welcome you to check out my uh, Check Your Brain. I'm saying check too much. That's okay. But we're not talking about Czech. We're talking about Russia, Ukraine, Mises. These are the names you're going to hear in this podcast today with Though Bishop from the Mises Institute. And it's uh, we get into a lot of cool stuff today. We talk about who Mises was, where he's from, actually. And then that's a nice little segue into what we're talking about with the, the I guess, the libertarian viewpoint of the conflict in Russia and Ukraine. And away from the Harry Potter storybook, good guys versus the bad guys, Red Sox versus Yankees, American viewpoint, who, you know, whose side are we on? What do we make of this here in America? And especially if you're a libertarian, you're pretty anti-war, anti-conflict. So what do you make of this? This isn't a binary situation. So Tho gets into talking about this in this podcast, so it's pretty timely today. And then we wrap up the podcast talking about where we're going east and west. And what is the future in the next five to ten years between the how Western cultures will, uh, you know, have kind of been focused so much on these more frivolous issues where in the east they're just full speed ahead with something? Or is that just the perception? Is the West coming back? And we just have some outliers. So it's really great conversation. This is going to be part one. We had a great conversation, me and Tho, or Tho and me. Uh, and it lasted almost two hours, so I decided to split it up in two, where we talk more about Ukraine and Russia in this podcast. And, that, and then the part two, which will happen in a few weeks, it'll be more about conservatism, paleoconservatism, libertarianism, paleolibertarianism, and that pathway and the response that libertarians have had in the last two plus years from the COVID situation and how they have handled it or mishandled it. So that'll be in the next couple of weeks. So I hope you enjoyed that podcast and I hope you enjoy this one here from the Mises Institute, a self-described Florida man from the Redneck Riviera. Here is Tho Bishop. By the way, before I get to Tho, uh, $5 a month just for my Patreon. You get four podcasts per week and early access to guests. So go to patreon.com slash Tony Mazur, T-O-N-Y-M-A-Z-U-R, and that's extra Check Your Brain podcasts per week and early access to guests, everything. It's a lot of – it's my rants and ravings and everything. You'll – really enjoy this. I'll talk sports. I'll talk politics. I'll talk anything. So please go there and subscribe for those uh, podcasts per week, $5 a month. It's it's less than a cost of one beer. <laughs> and if not, please subscribe to the free podcasts that come out every Wednesday, including this one with Tho Bishop. The Check Your Brain podcast, Tony Mazur here. 
And uh, I've been looking forward to this interview since uh, we've been talking for the last couple of days. And uh, I am a member of our chapter in Ohio, the of the Mises Institute, and or I should say the uh, the Mises Caucus. And talking to a member of the Mises Institute, the assistant editor over with Mises Wire, and that's Tho Bishop. And you're down there in the Redneck Riviera, as you like to say it. And um, you know, I, I, I thank you for coming on here. And uh, before we kind of get started with a lot of the meat of what's going on, whether it's in the world today or libertarian philosophy in general, uh, talk about who Mises was, why the Institute was founded, and in, especially in the COVID times in the last couple of years, having a lot of people taking a look at that caucus as opposed to more, I guess, more mainstream or even left libertarian uh, sects of the party and why Mises and why this institute and the caucus have really taken on some heavy steam in the last couple of years. Yeah, well, I appreciate the opportunity to address your audience, Tony. And I, I definitely love that question because uh, Mises the man is one of my favorite parts of uh, in working at the institute that bears his name. Uh, and I think the most, you know, we, we've got a lot of great scholars, we've got a lot of great ideas, I think, within the institute, but there's nothing that comes uh, can can I think show highlight more than than the actual story of the man himself and the example he lived with. Um, Ludwig von Mises was a scholar from old Vienna. Um, he was a Jewish scholar and and within the German German language tradition um, was the most I think powerful promoter of, of free markets and defender of free markets within the 20th century. Um, he was his traditions called Austrian economics, not only because he was in Vienna, uh, but it, it itself was kind of a, a, a slur, if you will, because the German economists kind of looked down as Austria as being the backwater. So it'd be kind of the equivalent. The Mises Institute is based in Auburn, Alabama these days. And so it'd be kind of the same thing if Paul Krugman started referring to us as Alabama economics <laughs> as sort of a, a poke. Right. And, um, but what's, what's important about it is that, for one, it's it's the methodology of Ludwig von Mises himself is, is very different than what we're taught in you know, most economic programs in the West. Uh, Mises understood that economics fundamentally is a very logically deductive science, right? Focused on how do we deal with the consequence of having finite resources with human society, where we all have different talents, different wants, different ends. And in doing so, he stressed uh, individualism in his methodology and extrapolating this out, outwards, one of his um, two great contributions early on in his career, one of them uh, was called the uh, uh, theory of money and credit, where he highlighted the way in which when governments artificially increase the money supply um, or, or ex increase credit through fiat, um, you know, when, when, when credit is expended, not from savings, but from other sources, that it creates an instability within the economy. Um, this has led to what's called the Austrian business cycle theory, based on the understanding when you have interest rates are too low, you end up having malinvestment in certain areas of the economy. Um, you know, when things get normalized, it crashes, right? Because things are being spent in ways that the market demand really isn't there for it. Um, you know, this is why Austrian economics kind of became big during, you know, American circles in 08, 09, the housing bubble, we kind of saw this play out in, in that way itself. But what's fascinating is after making this great contribution, he then had to go out and serve in the war during World War One when he served as an artillery uh, captain. Um, 
And, you know, so he had the experience too of, of seeing, you know, his students, his, his fellow you know, intellectuals kind of die around him, um, fighting off uh, Russian invasion there. And so, you know, what you have here is two sides of things. One is an appreciation for how the importance of, of order, but also the importance of peace as a way of promoting civilization. Um, and what's interesting is even these, and, and you know, in, during the peak of the war, when Mises was given the opportunity to serve uh, within kind of a more intellectual capacity with the war effort, he emphasized the damage that was being done by having the government socialized resources, even in a time of war. Because basically what he viewed was that even in a time of crisis, it doesn't mean that we can ignore economic laws. Because of that, they actually stood back out into some of the most treacherous parts of the, the war because uh, he kept telling the government no, which I, I, I don't think it was a coincidence. Um, luckily, he survived. Um, the other side of it, this one of the other great contributions after the war was that he was a great, uh, the leading intellectual opponent of Marxism because he recognized from this very individualistic approach the limitations of, you know, how do you, you can't manage an economy from a centralized perspective. Um, you know, without market prices, right? You, you don't know, you know, it's one thing to, you know, you know, I, I think when a lot of socialists look at the world these days, right? You think about, okay, we are in this world of plenty and we can redistribute this sort of stuff better. Um, socialists never really think about production. How no. do we get this stuff in the first place? Well, right? and, and we kind of saw that the last couple of years with COVID and we'll, yes. we'll get to a little more of that, but it was just like, you know, why can't you just stay home? Why can't you just right. order Fuddruckers like Pat Oswalt said? And it's like, well, okay. Then if you look at iPencil, how does that food get to you to your door? Okay, you pressed a button on your phone. Okay, well, how's that phone produced? Right. You know, and it just it really starts to pile up. But yeah, like you said, the, the Marxists and the socialists, they sit there and go, yeah, no, it's out there. And it just, you know, I press two buttons on my phone and in 45 minutes, food just magically popped up at my right. door. And they don't even think about the production and the costs and everything and the cost of goods and services. As long as you get your food, you know, you shrug your shoulders. It's it's amazing. The uh, it, re it really is just childish is what right. it comes down to. Yeah. And, and, and it's got the important thing is that, you know, there was there was a lot of people within American society, you know, within the 70s, 80s, before that. Right. They, they objected to socialism on the grounds that, you know, maybe like totalitarian grounds a little bit here and there. You know, it, it wasn't our way of doing things. But there was a lot of belief within like the, the, the mainstream economic profession that this was actually more efficient. And Mises was like, and, and this is what the Austrians kept saying, it's like, no, like this stuff, it's not simply that, that socialism leads to bad political policy, but that it doesn't work. It destroys civilizations. It destroys all this capital that's been accumulated. What it leads to is resources being used in things that people don't actually want. Massive waste, massive destruction. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what we saw play out in the Soviet Union. And, and so I think what's interesting right now, and, and, and the other side of it is, is that since he did come from like an old European society, you know, he, he also recognized the importance that you know, we're, we're born into language groups and common cultures, common traditions. And so that even though he recognized the importance of the individual and understanding this, the building block of society, individuals are born into larger cultural climates. And so therefore, if the, the, the true goal politically, you know, it, it's political self-determination of peoples. And, and that kind of put him at, at odds with some other libertarian thinkers, um, including some of his own students, um, that were very kind of libertarian down to the individual level. Mises kind of recognized this, this, the importance of these larger uh, uh, entities for understanding human behavior there as well. And so what that does is, is, is that I, th I think the reason he has so much relevance today 
is that you know we're at a time where defending free markets is, is more important than it ever has been def- been before. It, you know, true free markets, right? We've seen all the corruption of all these globalist institutions, the buildup of the administrative state. Again, COVID, I think, highlighted all this on steroids. And so making those stands for good economic policy is important. But at the same time, many of the people that try to claim this mantle, um, you know, have no problem with with viewing us kind of simply as an economy rather than a people. And and the other side of it is, you know, this populist moment. You know, we need to recognize that, you know, it, while it's very easy to go after, you know, and, and there's a lot of issues when we think about big business and, and all the ways that government directly fuels all this sort of stuff. Um, it's very easy to go the wrong way and, and become actively hostile to markets as well. And, and that becomes destructive to all the cultural concerns that conservatives have, right? And so I, I think that the Austrian view of economics and, and political philosophy in general um, has more relevance today than ever has been, been before. And I think that particularly when you have an inflationary environment and people feel unease, to say nothing about all the inter- international stuff going on right now, I think it's only when you have a little bit of when, when people realize something's not right is the only time you you really have a reevaluation of ideology. And and so I think now is an opportunity for new ideas to be put out in the ether. And I think, or at least uh, uh, heterodox ideas, I mean, for, for, you know, perhaps it's hard to say new ideas. We're talking yeah. about someone that died and uh, born, born in the late 1800s. But I, I think there's a lot of relevance to Mises now in what we're trying to nav- navigate all the great many problems we have as a society. So that, that's the long, long picture there. But uh, that, that's why Mises matters and his ideas matter. Uh, and where was Mises born? Uh, he was actually born in um, uh, Ukraine, what is now, uh, What's now Ukraine. Ukraine up in, uh, yes. So it leads me to my next uh, question, obviously, and I'm posting this in the next couple of weeks because this is still relevant. No matter it, you know when it's going to be posted in the next couple of weeks, we're still going to be discussing this situation in, in Russia and Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And w- what's interesting, and I, I'm over the weekend, you notice all the people that have the masks in their profile and the pronouns and everything. And they put hashtag BLM, hashtag, you know, don't say gay bill, all this kind of stuff. Now, all of a sudden, our hashtag I stand with Ukraine. Right. Now, all of a sudden, have their profile picture has the thing with the Ukraine, just like what they did in uh, the, the flag, just like what they did in France back in, mm-hmm. you know, with Bataclan, and just like they've done Pride Month, and just like they did with Black Lives Matter, and just like they did. It, it, it's this NPC mentality that you're seeing mm-hmm. right now. So, as far as the libertarian response, what's happening with Putin, Russia, Zelensky, what I guess is the libertarian – I'll ask your opinion too on how to what to make of this situation and the libertarian – and are there parallels? Is it the same kind of opinion? Like what is – I don't want to say a libertarian should be guided on what, what to feel, but what is I guess the true libertarian response to something like this because – it's certainly not the way the United States, especially the corporate press, is presenting it because we are people who enjoy sports in America and we like the winners and the losers and we like the underdog. So it seems like in America, the normies, the blue-pilled people, the NPCs are rooting for Ukraine because they look at it as a David and Goliath situation. They look at it as their baseball mm-hmm. team is facing the Yankees. and. There's way more nuance to it that's going on right now, and I'm not seeing enough in libertarian circles, in my opinion, based on what is you know what is a good response to this. And it just almost seems like people are just not well read on this mm-hmm. entire situation in the history of 
of Ukraine and in the, in the history of the Soviet Union, and even looking at Putin in general, where is he a Hitler figure or what? what is he doing? So I guess what are your thoughts and what's the libertarian response to this situation going on? Well, I think the libertarian response in general should just be extreme skepticism of anything that's coming out of official state outlets, and that includes on both sides of the war. Um, I think that, you know, hopefully there is an appreciation at this point at the intersection of the way the, the corporate press is, you know, a direct, uh, uh, you know, is, is often the means used by the regime to propose and, and to sell a specific narrative all aimed at a specific end and and i think that is something that it's it's very easy i think for a certain type of libertarian in particular to get fixated on the idea that there is here a role for the west to be the champion of liberalism abroad yeah right yeah that 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 if you have a dynamic here between um, and, and this is why Russia's kind of been one of those interesting actors for for, for many, many years uh, up to this point, because it, things have changed. Things changed a little bit. Changed, things changed in, 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 in a major, massive way when you have, you know, Putin bombing Kiev rather than defending, you know, rather than like doing peacekeeping operations, if you will, um, in, in eastern Ukraine. But, but even prior to this, though, there was this this dynamic where you know Russia was seen as a sinister, sinister threat precisely because of their rejection of a lot of cultural viewpoints and things like that that the West has you know it, it is now completely alien to the West um, when it comes to traditional values and et cetera et cetera and so they see it as you know there, there's an importance here to protect and 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 extend this sort of culturally liberal dynamic out in the world and therefore. Um, you know, might be more inclined to support um, and, and strengthen the U Ukrainian regime during this time. Um, I, I think, though, that that goes to where a lot of the interesting and I think most important conversation with li li within libertarian circles is not even what I would really call libertarian. If we think about libertarianism as simply being a rejection of state power, right? And and so so the libertarian response is 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 opposition to the West escalating things, right? It would also be condemning the actions of uh, uh, the Russian government um, within their invasion, um, defense of Ukrainians defending themselves. Um, but of course, one of the dynamics that, that are playing out in real time within this war is that if you have and and one of the things that led, I think, to a lot of the calculations that gave brought us to this point is that you have European governments taking a very active role in giving the, the Ukrainian government assurances that it might not be able to keep, um, assurances that might not be in the interest of the people of those other European governments should they act, right? You know, it, again, if, if, if you suggest there's a possibility, for example, of uh, NATO to eventually put in place a no-fly zone in the area. That's something that directly leads to the possibility of a hot war between a nuclear Russia and Europe, and that's not necessarily in the interest of, you know, the 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 people of those governments, right? Um, and and of course, all of this can then influence the decisions that the Ukrainian government makes 
where you know they they might be overly optimistic about what they can do which then leads to a prolonging of the war which then leads to increase of casualties you know et cetera et cetera et cetera so all those are ways in which it, i think it's important for libertarians to just be skeptical and, and to, to to you know be that critic of state power in a variety of ways i think what's interesting though is also on the other side of it is that you know when people are asking what is motivating putin what are the underlying things that have brought us to this point? I think that what we do see is a, a weakness within the West, which would include a lot of libertarians, that they have this very liberal in, you know, e even, even a kind of like a classical sense that underestimates the importance of these underlying issues like nationality and ethnicity and in you know, thousands of years of history, you know, where the, the, we, we've gotten kind of so baked into the West of looking things from pure like an economic point of view. And, you know, so there, there's these different sort of calculations that play that still mobilize and, and, and have massive impacts on the decisions made by culture, by, by, by powers and cultures that aren't ours. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that there's a ma massive blind spot because like, e even a lot of people who have, who have otherwise been very, very good on anti-war issues within libertarian circles in the past, right? They underestimated what Putin would do here. And I think that itself reflects its own sort of blindness on, on what motivates these other issues. And so I think that's where there is value in also being able to think outside of that, that Western liberal view, which, you know, it, it, that itself can also complement that libertarian framing of how do you properly criticize power um, but give it a lot more nuance to better understand how these actors are going to act going forward. It's funny you say that because you talk about the West response. And I think I, I've been weighing this out because I think we, you know, mentioning with the NPC type of mentality of the good guys versus the bad guys. Mm -hmm. Putin's clearly the bad guy, which means Ukraine's the good guy. Right. But there's way more. There's way more nuance. It's a lot of gray area that's going on right now. And, you know, you can't just chalk it up as the Putin's going to Putin's Hitler and right. Zelensky. You know, it's just it's it's silly. It's childish. It's storybook level. And the way I look at it from a Western perspective, it really just seems that we are the because I'm, I, I you know, with being with Mises and everything, I'm very anti-war. I want us to I'm very isolationist. Um, but it also shows that we are a paper tiger in the West, mm -hmm. that we are pretty feckless. We're pretty – I mean we have a president who has dementia, that it's pretty obvious that he is just is, – is really not leading the country. We're run by uh, different interests. It's not – you know, there, there's a lot that's going in here, and it's not just – not just here in America. It's in Canada. It's overseas. It's in it's in England. We've seen England have that takeover uh, in all of Great Britain. You've seen it in Germany. You've seen it in France. And it just seems to me that ah, the West is failing. The West is failing. And it, you, when you look in terms of it's like the idea of the West is brilliant, capitalism, everything. But in practice, it really, to me, it just seems like in the last, especially the last couple of years, but you're seeing this trend over and over. In my opinion, it, and maybe it's yours, maybe it's a shared opinion, or you can kind of either back me up or, or kind of push back a little bit, but it just seems like the West is really showing their hand right now that they're just paper tigers right now. And it's just, it's just a matter of time, whether it's economically, whether it's through force, whether it's through 
uh, you know, just any type of trade situation. It is just we're not in a good situation, and it just I, – I don't see where it's going to improve unless you just really focus as, like I said, in an isolationist. And, you know, I, I, I don't get it. It's just – it really just seems like we're failing here. Well, I think it highlights the limitations of what, you know, measuring the health of society and, and purely sort of materialistic grounds can, can really show. Um, and I, I think what, we, what we're seeing, I mean, it, it, we're living in a period of, of great cultural decay. And I think a big part of that is directly related to the secularization of the West, um, which I think has also made us vulnerable to a lot of these, these, these hysterias, whether it is global warming, whether it is COVID. Trans it, issues. Yeah. I mean, we're, that, we're talking that, about trans in the military. When you're, right. when I'm, when I'm seeing people going like, oh, maybe we should start putting troops out there. It's like you have Mark Milley, who's, who's more concerned about white rage in the 1619 project. And they're all sitting there in briefing rooms, wearing masks mm -hmm. and talking about, well, if a trans person wants to get a sex change and you're like, we're done here. <laughs> we're done. We have we have zero policy if this is what we're focused on, right? And so what we have is a scenario where again, like you 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 never kill God, you replace God, right? And so, you know, and 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 you need that sort of you know you, you've got the, the your your sin dynamic going on, and so you have all these things because because individuals are always looking for something bigger than themselves, right? That's that's, and so what fills that void, um, you know. Go, and, and then, then of course, it's captured with. So, so now we have our own uh, uh, Western sort of of uh, hero archetypes that are that, that that arise, right? You know, so you know the 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 Marvel movie sort of land. You know, you scroll through Twitter, and all of the comparisons that people make to understand these large global events are, you know. Marvel characters or Harry Potter characters or oh. things like that, right? And, and then it's interesting because, like, and, and then we've created this kind of our de facto devil in the secular West is Hitler, right? And, yeah. and so everyone, if if you know anything that 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 is is evil from whatever the current dynamic is, they are conflated with Hitler, literally. Because Hitler. Hitler is Western secular devil, and again, I mean Hitler. Don't get me wrong, very very bad dude, but mm -hmm. like. There, there, are, there are other very, very bad dudes. And, because, and, and the thing is that it highlights the way to which these, uh, uh, you know, that is the issue rather than, you know, the, the communist regimes and things like that as well, right? And there's a lot of great horrors that that have been perpetuated within the West or, or, or even against the West, right? And, but that, you know, that's the one thing that keeps coming up. And so, like, we have just a very infantilized society here. And, and this does, I think, and what I think is interesting as well is that all these characteristics that are being praised about the people of Ukraine are precisely those features that the West is at war against, right? Yeah. It's, it's a war against masculinity. It's a war against nationalism. nationalism. It's, you know, it, you know, all these sort of things that this is what the West, that this is what the elites of the West are trying to drive out of our society. And yet this is exactly, this is precisely what normal people find themselves inspired by when given in practice. And, you know, it, it, when you have the elites actively working against, you know, the cultural interests of the people, I mean, you're, you're having the power that they do, you're dealing with a very culturally sick society. And that's why and that's that's one of the issues here is that it's so easy to get distracted by politics. And I do, do not dismiss the importance of elections and political gains. Being a Floridian, my life has been materially uh, uh, you know, impacted I mean, you know, to, to an incredible degree. 
simply because 33,000 votes made Ron DeSantis the governor of Florida rather than Andrew Gillum. So there's definitely, you know, I'm, I'm not undermining and, and trying to dismiss the role, the role that politics can play here, but winning elections alone doesn't solve this. Yeah. And and so, you know, you know until we deal with that, that cultural and spiritual sickness, I, I don't think that you're going to see a true right-wing wave in, in terms of a meaningful political action if it's not corresponded with a similar sort of you know, revivalist element, um, it's Christian revivalism, just kind of a patriotic sort of revivalism, you know, how you have different conversations about what exactly is required within that. But there has to be a cultural revival alongside the political revival if we're going to deal with just how deep and sick the issues that are really facing us are. I, I think you, you may have retweeted it or somebody retweeted it today, and we're recording this on February 28th. And I saw somebody that said, you know, every U.S. embassy should have the Ukrainian flag hanging from it. And somebody commented saying, so you're okay with nationalism, just not American nationalism. Right. right. It, it's isn't it incredible. I mean, anytime you brought up the American flag in the last five years, it's Colin Kaepernick, it's Black Lives Matter, it's all this kind of stuff. But it's okay to fly other people's flags, including right. the trans flag, the pride flag. So it's okay to be nationalistic as long as it's not American nationalistic, because then we have to be reminded of all the uh, what's going on. And that's that is interesting because, you know, when talking talking about libertarian philosophy and getting back to Mises and everything, and you look at the economic and talking about Austrian economics, but. That's good, all well and good, but we're in a cultural war right now. Right. And it seems to me that I think some libertarians kind of, you know, fall through like they, you know, they look at more of the, the Hoppian version of, of the economic angle. And I get that. It's totally important. But we're in a cultural war right now and we're dealing with cultural rot. And like you said, where everybody, so I'm, I turned 34 on Wednesday. Everybody, every girl my age knows Harry Potter, and every guy my age knows the Marvel movies. So, like, when you were mentioning that, it just, that's their point of reference. Everything is, well, you know, Thanos said, I'm like, do you have, do you read anything? Do you, do you watch anything else? To, are you just sitting there watching Netflix all day? Are you just sitting there reading Harry Potter? Is that all you read in high school? You're not reading anything. You're not doing anything with your life. And it just seems to me that we have now... We have had this cultural rot going on. Obviously, you know, you can you can go back not only decades but even centuries is when things really started. But in the internet age, it's amazing that we have so much information at our fingertips right now, yet we have too many stupid people that are not learned, that just it can't even I mean can't even open a book. And it's and but what did we do? We sent them all to college. We sent them all to college. So you have kids that are graduating or now 22, 23, 24 years old going to college. They don't know anything. And it just seems that we have really dropped the ball here in the West. And I think another thing is when you mentioned the secularism of the West is that we've replaced God or church with academia, that that's the big thing mm -hmm. now is that church and academia are, 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 are one in the same now, where it used to be in the 20s, 30s, 40s that you would meet, you know, your, the, your wife, your spouse is at church today, and you got to know the family, and that was the communal feel. Well, then church and God kind of fell out of favor in the West, and it was replaced by secular idols, whether it's Spider-Man and Iron Man, whether it's, um, you know, your college professor or your teacher, your guidance counselor. And it just seemed to me that 
in my opinion, we are a religious people. It's just we found a new religion. It's not organized mm-hmm. religion. It's what we want to consider. And, and obviously, that's not only is it secular, it's pagan. Well, it, 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 to be fair to the first point, uh, the, the one degree I might, might have a little bit of pushback is that I, th- I think that historically often the people as a whole, right, like the, the masses, you know, they, they typically probably are more well-versed in whatever your pop culture is of the day versus the, the wisdom of the history of, of the past. I think what makes this current, and obviously when you have, you know, with the rise of democracies, that made that change a little bit. But I, I think even then, the real issue we have right now is the quality of the elites in this country. Right, because he, 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 your average person doesn't necessarily need to be able to to go deeply within these issues, so long as the people that are in the positions of power are, you know, can right. And the problem is, is that our elite have never been so stupid as they are right now. Mm-hmm. You know, they've never been more more isolated. They've and they've also never been more certain of their viewpoint, right? Because because their viewpoint is their religion. Their politics is their religion now. Politics isn't a reflection of their religion. It is their, their religion. And, and I, I think this goes a great deal. Again, just, just the, the, the rot that we've seen, you know, played out in, in America, definitely within the 1900s. I mean, a lot of this, you know, your, your, your classic, uh, uh, you know, conservative narrative right, you know, pits this back to um, the French Revolution and, and some of the consequences of sort of the, the European uh, Enlightenment political class in, in general um and and i because I, I i think that's something that, that always made um the anglo enlightenment tradition a lot different than some of the continental stuff is that you know like john locke for example was very much a christian um it was very much mo- you, know, you know motivated by you know the the you know us being made within the image of god and that's you know the american revolution you know an appeal to heaven sort of flags right you know the the, the arguments for um, you know, the American Revolution war kind of deeply ingrained within Christianity itself. Um, whereas you know, the, the, we're, we're within Europe, you know, kind of this, this worship of reason alone uh, has, you know, inevitably leads to the worship of the intellectual class, which lends to itself to, you know, it, it's a modern version of, of the, the uh, axis of, of throne and altar when those intellectuals are then embedded within the government itself and that is why you know once you had you know as byproduct of of of, you know the the two world wars and the build of the state around it you know when you had the build of that of that administrative state staffed by those you know intellect those those uh, university products um this is what leads to the situation we have right now and why and i mean it's also the degree to which you know our government really is not by any meaningful measure a democracy when most of the authority and, and most of the rules that are written do not come from you know the legislature or even the president but from a, a, a professional class underneath him um, that is entrenched within the ideologies of these universities and what's really terrifying is when you uh, move that lens outwards as well and you see the degree which for example when it comes to central bankers in the world right now um, most essential bankers making all these very important decisions with monetary policy, which have gotten increasingly aggressive, increase, you know, increasingly uh, 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 reckless. It's because all these central bankers think alike, right? Because they come from these from same sort of products. And so what we've also done is, is we have this very dangerous sort of homogenization of, I think, culture as a, as a broad, right? You know, that's, that's, I think, a big part of 
you know, this, this sort of, of commercialization of everything, right? You know, we, we, you know that, that's, that's where those, that Marvel movie is, right? Where we all kind of have all the same cultural points. So it's kind of the homogenization of, of culture at the expense of, you know, ethnic and religious and, and, and other sort of traditions. Uh, but then also a homogenization within the intellectual class that just leads to a lot of dangers because if, if any of the underlying foundations of those ideologies are wrong, then everything's wrong. Mm -hmm. And that's how you have these massive collapses. And that's precisely what I fear going on within uh, uh, you know, the, the monetary policy. This is exactly the th same the thing that we saw play out with COVID, yep. this group think dynamic here. And so when that persists and so in, in, entrenched within the elite that have the real power there, that, that's what cr creates a very dangerous situation. Um, you know, and that's 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 again exactly where we find ourselves at, and that's precisely why I don't trust us to be able to handle. Uh, you know, get, we, 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 you can't trust our, our governments right now to get the make the trains run on time. Yeah. Much less uh, dealing with uh, you know hot warfare with the uh, nuclear powers involved. Uh, I, I want to talk more about your path to libertarianism and, uh, and and the COVID hysteria in just a little bit. Uh, the last thing I wanted to ask as far as how the West versus the East is, where do you see things playing out? Are th things getting really sped up from the last two years when you talk about China and, um, you know, Taiwan, and then now you have Russia and Ukraine and, you know, talks of building up this, rebuilding the Soviet Union and everything. And, and then yet here in the the east or in the west we're talking about you know trans bathrooms we're talking about these silly things that uh it, where do you see this is this escalating a lot quicker than i think a lot of people realized and you know where do you see in the next uh, let's say decade because things are really i mean this isn't one of those playing out like oh we'll see how things go in the next couple of decades i mean we're talking pretty darn soon here uh where do you see the east in the west uh, in the next 10 years? Is, are we just going to continue going down this path here in the West? And is the East going to continue pressing on into, uh, in towards, or as Nicole Hannah-Jones doesn't think uh, the, uh, Europe is a continent, but, uh, you know, a, as they start pressing a little further, like, w where do you see things happening in the next, uh, well, you know, five, 10 years? Yeah, I, I will say when it comes to this dynamic of East versus West, I have a little bit of a contrarian view where the, I, I don't think the East is in much better shape. Um, I, th I think the worst kept, I, I, I think one of the biggest miscalculations people make about China is that they actually believe, it's, it's kind of very similar to, I think the calculations in the way that the West viewed the Soviet Union in the 1980s is that they saw this growing uh, uh, powerhouse uh, terrified at the possibility of what such a power looks like when they don't share um, those traditional Western ideas of individualism, and therefore we per possibly have the makings of this incredible unrelenting war machine that can really uh, take down the world as we know it. I, I, I don't think China has that capability. I think the Chinese economy is even a bigger bubble than the West is. Um, I think that you know, the, the beauty of it is that, you know, their gigantic bureaucracy doesn't work much better than a East than a Western giant bureaucracy. And that in some ways, uh, the the autocratic nature um, of, you know, of, of what China has become reversing away from some of those market reforms that brought China um, to where, you know, it, it had become this rising force. 
I think the consequences there are going to lead to a much weaker East in the long run. And in fact, I'm what I'm what I'm concerned about um, within some of that dynamic is the degree to which the West has gotten greedy and uh, uh, is going to have a lot more exposure to uh, Chinese debt than it perhaps should if the West seriously took um, all of the concerns it has about China properly, right? And this is a similar dynamic that is playing out with, you know, uh, Europe's addiction to Russian oil. You know, it's, it's very easy to, to talk about and virtue signal your opposition to pick whatever, via, you know, human rights violation you want um, when you don't have the courage or the, the strength or the fortitude to then economically act in ways to disassociate yourself from that behavior, um, you know, it just, it's, it, that, that's weakness right there. Um, and so I, I think that in the long run, the West is still much better off um, than these other areas, um, even though, but, 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 but the reason why the West is in decline is, is, is because we, you know, we, you know, uh, because of that cultural decay, and that's why I think that's the, the the what what I think is the most interesting bright spot is the is South America, because in there you have um, you have a lot of the benefits kind of of both East and West there, where you have economies that I mean I, I'm I'm not gonna highlight and I'm gonna jump up and down and talk about how how well managed both these South American countries are. Most of them are not right. But, but their mistakes are much smaller in sort of scale, right? Um, you know, a, a lot of that just comes from having the fact that their, their governments kind of keep changing in terms of ideology. They have, this, you have these constant sort of swings going on. And so, again, it, it's, it's destabilizing right now. And, and, and you know, I think a, mo- a lot of uh, South America is underperforming where they would be with like a, a strong, uh, proper sort of government there. Um, but it also kind of prevents, you know, imposing like one child policies, yeah. right, which is very, very bad for society, as it turns out, um, because, you know, population rates matter. Um, and, but they also have, you know, a, a strong Christian ethos that hasn't been beaten out of the country yet, right? And, and that's why I think one of the things that's going to be interesting is, is that in, in America, we're going to kind of see this play out in our own way, where I think a lot of the uh, uh, concerns about demographics demographics is destiny and how the left is going to triumph with the uh uh you know as as uh you know the the percentage of the american voting population moving from white to other uh ethnicities i think what it uh, the the bailout of conservative america may in fact come from this culture war dynamic where you know while your average hispanic voter might care less about let's say gun rights or, or some of these sort of, uh, uh, you know, classic conservative issues. Uh, ultimately, though, what they really—they're not going to vote for an anti-God, anti-Christian political party either. And I think that the left has vastly overplayed its hand with its very militant cultural takes and the amplification on their war on religion. Where again, I think the transgender thing is, is such a one of the most blatantly obvious things about it. And what you have is a Democratic Party. That has decided to opt in favor of you know the LGBTQ plus plus whatever it is uh, body and the uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, neither of which play particularly well within the mainstream of, of Hispanic America, and I think that that might be a you know one of those dynamics where you have you know a a large Christian population that could serve to help fortify 
uh, a lot of what the West has lost. Yeah. Um, now, problem is, is that you're going to have you know some some brainiac Republican consultant then try to use that as a as a spin for like you know larger amnesty plays and, and, and more voters. And I don't, I don't think that's, that's the answer either. Right. Like you, you, you want to have, you want to have your grifters. Yeah. Yeah. And you, 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 you it, it's, it's important to maintain a sense of, of national pride and, and keeping, you know, your strong citizenship requirements, all that sort of stuff like that, that is, that is necessary because like people need to value being a citizen of your country, right. People, when, when people know they do not value, citizenship and doing things the right way like it, that that's that that leads to a lot of those, those societal decay issues um but in terms of this larger geographical point of view i i think that if the west can survive in the short term the maliciousness the maliciousness and the impotency uh and the stupidity of our elite in the short term i think some of these larger trends are going to be at the detriment of those in the charge of this larger regime right now. And that that combined with a Christian revival helped by South America uh, can maintain the West's uh, strength in the long run, coupled with the errors made by the East. Um, of course, I could also see the, 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 the way that this could all play out in, in a very much more negative perspective is if you instead have South America secularize the same way that America, the West has, and sort of the, you know, the, the, I, I do acknowledge that there's the possibility that, you know, this sort of globalist, uh, uh, you know, secular elite end up just continuing down their sort of imperialist road, um, which would be very detrimental for all of us. Um, but I, I, I am far more an optimist when it comes to these sort of things. And, and, and it's also because I, again, I think that a lot of these people have overplayed their hands. And, and, and I, I think that what you're seeing in the West right now is, a, a, some very serious issues over political legitimacy. And I think that plays out when you have, you know, Canada going to extreme measures to deal with peaceful with, with protests. I think it plays out with the way that the 2020 election was handled. January 6th. Um, I have to hear about every other yes. day. Yes. I mean, the, the persecution of political minorities uh, or, or of yourself, political opponents, it, it, it undermines the credibility the regime has. And ultimately it is that perception of legitimacy Regardless of, of you know, regardless of what your opinion, your, your individual opinion is of your your government, um, you know, one person questioning it is is one thing. When you have 50, 60, 70 percent of the country questioning it, that's another thing entirely. And I think that you know you, this is going to continue to be an issue um, that that plagues the elites. And and what we've seen so far is that their playbook is very heavy-handed, and and um, not belt, not not designed for a way of of winning from persuasion and soft power um, that they're constantly trying to depend upon uh, uh, you know, hard power and I think when you mix in the additional possibility of, of, of economic crisis within that broadening uh, the cracks within the political legitimacy of these institutions that that lends itself to an environment where that, that can completely change the world. Um, that could also be lead to very terrible things. I, 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 when we talk about this sort of stuff, we should not be overly optimistic and naive True. in this sort of stuff. I mean, these things can go very, very poorly. Um, but all of it just simply highlight there's a lot of stuff that's going on right now in a variety of ways that can lead to some very, very major shifts happening in the West, um, which again kind of just highlights the the hubris of you know some of these people that have been going on for decades now about the you know this 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 current order 
that we have and, and kind of its inevitability. No, nothing is inevitable. Uh, as uh, I think we're going to see that increasingly going forward. Oh, yeah. Well, it's a very white-pilled perspective. It's kind of refreshing.